This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project, and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Daniel Goleman is an internationally known psychologist and author of the worldwide bestseller, Emotional Intelligence. More recently, he co-authored the monumental Altered Traits, Science Reveals How Meditation Changes Your Mind, Brain, and Body. It's really a great book. He's a frequent speaker to businesses of all kinds and sizes. He's worked with leaders around the globe examining the way social and emotional competencies impact the bottom line. His articles in the Harvard Business Review are among the most frequently requested reprints of all time. The focused leader, for example, won the 2013 HBR McKinsey Award for Best Article of the Year. Goldman has been ranked among the 25 most influential business thinkers by several publications, including Time and the Wall Street Journal. And apart from his writing on emotional intelligence, Goldman has written books on self-deception, creativity, transparency, meditation, social and emotional learning, eco-literacy, and the ecological crisis. In this episode, we talk about the many ways in which meditation brings benefits to all aspects of our lives. Relationships at home and at work improve as we're able to shift focus from ourselves to others with compassion, empathy, and caring. Focus and attention, memory and retention, and productivity, all are strengthened as we become calmer and clearer. We talk about the burgeoning interest in meditation and mindfulness, and Goldman describes the growing body of evidence demonstrating its many benefits. He notes how much can be achieved immediately, even if you just start out five or ten minutes a day. And if you want to know more about the ways in which you can do that, he recommends two apps. One is 10% Happier from Dan Harris, and the other is Headspace. And for more information about Goleman and his coaching program, see danielgoleman.info and keystepmedia.com. I hope you like the Work and Life podcast. And if you do, I would much appreciate it if you would rate it and leave a review on iTunes so others are more likely to find and enjoy it too. So please do that. And now, Get set to listen to and learn from one of the world's leading experts on and a true pioneer in the study of intelligence about emotions, of the heart and the mind, and of mindfulness meditation. It's Daniel Goleman. Daniel Goleman, welcome to Work and Life. It's great to have you here. Well, Stu, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for that introduction. 
So you're you're a pioneer uh, who's been writing for decades, like m- multiple decades, starting in the '70s about the life of the mind, and not so much about pathology and mental illness, but about how our inner lives affect us in all parts of our lives, at work, at home, everywhere, and what we can do to be more emotionally intelligent, more mindful about our, well, who we are, our inner lives, and how we bring that to the world. And this was all before, this was a hot topic, and it's now, uh, our world today, you know, the, the, the question of attention is just such a pressing one with... Uh, with with all of the, the the many problems that we talk a lot about on this show, so I want to start by uh, quoting William James, who you quote in your book Focus, because I think that's a good place for us to begin the conversation. The faculty of voluntarily bringing back a wandering attention over and over again is the very root of judgment, character, and will. As you begin chapter five of your wonderful book Focus. How did you get into this subject to begin with? You know, I got into it because I needed it. Um, I <laughs> first started doing this kind of practice when I was an undergraduate. Mm-hmm. I was pretty nervous, anxious, jittery, and it, I found it calmed me down and focused me. And so I had a kind of subjective sense of it. Then I went on to graduate school and mm-hmm. clinical psych, and uh, in those days it was very focused on what's wrong with people, not what's yes. right with people. But I really found myself interested in what we could improve, what, you know, what aspects of ourself, of uh, how we behave, could get stronger, could get better, could become more positive. And mm-hmm. it seemed to me that this was a fundamental exercise in training the mind in a way that was new to the West, at least back then. Now, mm-hmm. as you point out, everybody's doing it. Yeah, it was new to the West, you you uh, wandered east uh, in in the seventies and and found uh, through your uh, found teachers and and did uh, you, as I understand your first book was was really to document the varieties of meditative experience. Yeah, you know it was a transgressive act. I was a, a student in clinical psych at Harvard, and mm-hmm. you know going to India alone was suspect, and then being interested in consciousness and in uh, meditation and in training the mind was actually pretty uh, pretty much made me an outlier in the field. But still, mm-hmm. I knew in my gut that this was going to be important and that this was something that was pretty much lacking in psychology and in the way we we relate to our mind. Uh, so I, you know, I, I dove in, but uh, the interest took a while when. Mm-hmm. And my my co-author, who you mentioned, Richard Davidson, was a graduate student with me at Harvard. Mm-hmm. He's now a neuroscientist at Wisconsin. When we both uh, did our dissertation research uh, re- related to this kind of training of the mind, and when we did it, there were about actually just three articles in the academic literature that we could cite. When we circled back to it, you know, twenty odd years later, there were six thousand plus. Amazing. peer review articles. There's been an explosion, particularly around mindfulness. So how do you explain that uh, that shift? Well, I, I have to credit a, a third friend, John Kabat-Zinn. Mm-hmm. We were all uh, buddies in, in Cambridge uh, early on. He developed a, a method, of a, a package really for mindfulness called mm-hmm. mindfulness-based stress reduction. Mm-hmm. He first introduced it to hospitals, but uh, it became the first that was well-studied and well-researched, and the findings 
were so strong that I, I think that was one of the things that propelled mindfulness into center stage, uh, the fact that the data was showing that, hey, you know, this really does sharpen your attention, mm -hmm. makes you a better learner. Uh, I think very important in the workplace today helps you uh, be better able to handle multitasking, to stay focused, stay concentrated, despite all the distractions that we have. And Lord knows there's more distractions than ever today. Uh, so I think those all became powerful arguments for mm -hmm. sharing this. The evidence. And then, uh, you know, there have been a few things along the way that helped a lot. Another is the fact that uh, it turns out that this calms the part of the brain that re overreacts to, to triggers, uh, which is a big problem in the workplace. And mm -hmm. um, then there, was, there are things like, um, you know, the CEO at Aetna uh, had a terrible ski accident, and he ended up partly paralyzed in constant pain. And here's a guy who has access to the best medicine anywhere. He found there was nothing in medicine that would help him with the pain. So he started doing yoga and mindfulness, and he found that that helped him manage his pain. Mm -hmm. So he offered it to everyone at Aetna, mm -hmm. and he's a numbers guy, so he tracked what differences it made, and they found that the, the um, stress hormone cortisol, which uh, floods our bodies when we're anxious and stressed out, it was reduced by 28%. People had better quality sleep, and, and they had more productive time at work. Uh, he, found, he figured that... Uh, equaled about $3,000 a year in greater productivity. So, so he became a strong proponent. Uh, also supporting it. He became a strong proponent, and, 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 and that and so many other uh, people who have experienced the benefits now uh, are promoting the idea. Um, but as I said in the intro, there is some, some risk in it becoming, uh, well, perhaps too commercialized. Maybe that's the wrong way to think about it, but that you know, not all methods are are equally effective, and I want to I want to explore that further. But I think sure. listeners would benefit from just a brief kind of synopsis of how mindfulness works. Many sure. many people listening will will have some knowledge of this because we've mm -hmm. done shows on this before. Uh, Michael Bame, who runs the Penn Mindfulness Program and has for many years, is a uh, a guest here and talking about his work with with Kabat Zinn and. Um, a number of others who are who are teaching and bringing these ideas uh, into the world, um, but it would be good to have from you just a, a quick overview of how this practice works and and what effect it has sure. on attention. Well, the, you know the basic move in mindfulness is say you you decide you're, okay I'm going to focus on my breath. Mm -hmm. I'm going to keep my attention there. I'm going to watch the full in breath, the full out breath. Then you know what happens? Your mind wanders. It happens to everybody. Some people think, oh, I can't do this. My mind, I'm going nuts. Mm -hmm. you know, I can't keep. But actually, that's just because you're starting to pay attention to what your mind is doing. Mm -hmm. You notice that it wandered. That's the moment of mindfulness, and you bring it back to your breath. That's a fundamental repetition, just akin to going to the gym and lifting a weight. Mm -hmm. Every time you do a rep, that muscle gets a little bit stronger. Every time you bring your mind back, uh, it strengthens the circuitry for concentration and focus. And you're not speaking well, metaphorically here. You're speaking biochemically, right? Yeah. I'm, I mean, this, this is what the data seems to suggest, mm -hmm. that you're strengthening neural circuitry. You know, the underlying concept is called neuroplasticity. I'm sure you've dealt with it on your show, Stu. But it basically means that the brain shapes itself continually according to whatever we experience. And mm -hmm. if you do something regularly, like practice a golf stroke, 
mm-hmm. the circuitry in the brain for, for that stroke gets stronger and stronger. And this underlies expertise. Uh, you mentioned, uh, you, you know, that there's, you didn't use this word, but basically there's smart practice and not so smart practice, mm-hmm. no matter what the skill is. Uh, and um, the, the psychologist Erickson at, at Florida has done the best research on this. He finds, he, for one thing, he's a little uh, frustrated with Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000-hour rule, which mm-hmm. was based on his research. He says, it's not 10,000 hours. The basic principle is the more you do, the better you get if you have a coach. Big caveat feedback, there. If mm-hmm. you're getting expert feedback on mm-hmm. what to do next to improve your game. Mm-hmm. And he points out that, you know, performers, professional athletes always have a coach of throughout course. their career. Amateurs, he says, will do about 50 hours of practice, roughly, and then plateau. They don't get any better. They just say, well, that's good enough. Mm. But people who want to get better and better uh, will keep practicing and look for feedback on how they can uh, improve their performance. And, you know, in the meditation domain, this happens on retreats mostly. And classically in Asia, you always had a teacher you, mm-hmm. And you would report to the teacher, here's what I'm doing, here's what I experienced. And you say, oh, good, now try this next, and this next, and this next. So, so a, a guide along the path is, is really necessary to continue to improve. Well, yeah, that's for, for deep benefit. As you point out, uh, the more you practice, the better you get. But, you know, uh, we found in looking at the research that they're quite remarkable benefits right at the beginning. Yes. You, you know, and uh, I've experienced those, I them. I think are very important. Yeah. So, so talk about those because there's probably a lot of people listening who are thinking, hmm, this sounds interesting. How do I do it? Right. So uh, let's say you uh, start doing some mindfulness or any other kind of mental training is what we think of it as. Uh, along these lines. And what happens is your attention sharpens. Well, that's kind of a no-brainer, because that's what it is. It's an attentional exercise. Yes. You're, you're bringing your focus back, you're, uh, and that turns out on every measure of attention that's, that's been tried to improve your ability to focus. Uh, so and just by practicing I, the, the repetition of bringing your wandering mind back to focus every time it wanders, and of course it wanders every time, that improves your ability to focus. It, it does, because that's the, the basic uh, r- repetition for mm-hmm. concentration. And concentration is kind of the fundamental benefit but it pays off. For example, at the University of California, mm-hmm. uh, they taught a mindfulness to a group of students, and they had a you know comparison group. They did something else, and the students who did the mindfulness had a significantly higher score on the GRE on the uh, you know graduate school mm-hmm. entrance exam. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a surprise. But what it suggests is it doesn't just focus concentration; it helps you understand better, helps you learn better. How's that? You're, uh, and, you know, that's, that's a great thing no matter what you're doing. Well, uh, how, how does it help you to grasp deeper, uh, m- more, more deeply and, and well, sort of re- integrate? Okay, so there are two kinds of memory. So that's, uh, one is called working memory. That's what you're thinking about focusing on right now. Mm-hmm. The other is long-term memory. And uh, how much you learn, how much you understand or comprehend depends on the transfer rate from short-term to long-term. And apparently that improves. That's what that data suggests. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, the other set of benefits has to do with anxiety and calmness. Mm. And it turns out that the, uh, the particular part of the brain that triggers our stress response when, when we're getting upset by something uh, is the amygdala. Mm -hmm. the, and the amygdala uh, in some people triggers a lot. And when you trigger, it's very strong mm -hmm. and it lasts long. Uh, but with this kind of practice, all of that reverses so that you're triggered less, uh, you're not triggered so strongly, you, um, the body's uh, experiences less cortisol. Remember, that's the stress hormone that floods the body when you're upset, and you recover more quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, so basically, you end up being pretty calm and pretty clear, and I would argue that's the best state to function in, mm -hmm. no matter what you're doing. Um, back to um, attention and how to how the, the immediate um, impact that people can experience when just starting out. Um, yeah, and you, these you were saying. benefits show up, um, you know, the, in the first days of, of uh, having tried it. But there's another thing that's important, Stu, and that is that uh, output depends on input, and there are different varieties of practice of mental practice. Another that has a completely different set of benefits has mm -hmm. to do with well-wishing. Uh, and this is kind of comes from a classical approach to meditation from Asia. It's been modified so that, for example, you might think of someone you're grateful to in your life and mm -hmm. wish that they be safe and happy, healthy, and so on. Then you think of yourself, you think of people you love, you send them the same wishes, you do this silently and mentally, mm -hmm. uh, and um, then you extend it out. People you work with, people you know in your community, everyone everywhere, finally. That's the hard one. Mm -hmm. But what it seems to do is to strengthen uh, what's called empathic concern. And if you think about the bosses that people love and the bosses people hate to work for, yes. one of the big dimensions of difference is whether you feel that your boss cares about you or tunes into you or even notices you, let alone empathizes, supports you, guides you, uh, you know, tunes into you. So uh, this strengthens the actually the neural circuitry for being prepared to do that. But this is a different kind of meditation and right. has a different set of benefits. So, and you find that people can really change their, the circuitry to become more empathic through this kind of training? Well, that's what the data seems to show. Uh, we're looking at data, uh, for example, on empathic concern from mm -hmm. the Max Planck Institute, which is sort of the MIT of Germany, mm -hmm. uh, or the NIH slash MIT of mm -hmm. Germany. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's another interesting thing is that uh, the research on these methods is not just in the U.S. It's pretty much global. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very strong in Europe, wherever there's good research going on. Hmm. So th the, the, the capacity to be uh, learning about how to become more empathic through this sort of meditative practice, uh, I imagine that certain people are more amenable to undertaking that sort of uh, learning journey than others. What's been your experience in bringing that idea and that practice uh, to the business world in terms well, of... Uh, you know, uh, my model of emotional intelligence has four parts. It's self-awareness, self-management, mm -hmm. and I think mindfulness helps very much in those domains. But then the third part is empathy, 
being able to read emotions in other people, being able to, uh, the fourth part is relationship management, social skill, which builds on empathy. And what I've found, and uh, Stu, I'd be interested in your experience too, is that there's some people who just tune out and who don't really care. Mm -hmm. They may be brilliant systems thinkers, they might be a great you know, engineer or whatever, mm -hmm. but they just don't relate to other people and they really need to build empathy. Uh, right. and, uh, and some care and some don't. Mm -hmm. So how do you help those folks who are just not inclined or not trained in their you know, background and you know, depending on the kind of work that they've done throughout their lives or the cultures that they grew up in, um, how do you break through that? Um, well, you know, really that's a question about motivation. Right. And my own feeling is that the first question to ask someone who wants to improve uh, in this set of, you know, human skills is, do you care? Hmm. I don't, you know, if, you, if the person actually doesn't care, I don't think that they can make much progress. But then the question is, how do you get someone to care? Yes. And sometimes, uh, you know, it happens because of some personal crisis. Right. People realize that, oh, my God, you know, uh, uh, the people I care about the most are telling me that I don't care about them. Mm -hmm. So they, they get the feedback from the, the, yeah. their social reality somehow exactly. con conveys yeah. to them and breaks through uh, whatever walls that might they might have constructed that they feel a need to you got it. to change, right? Is that yeah? So so that then opens people up to, you know, to care. This is a, a question that human resources faces all the time, mm -hmm. which is how do you get people to want to get better hmm. if they don't already? So what what have you found to be most effective in that? Simply asking that question, I could see how uh, that would be very well, effective. Asking the question is a useful index of whether you can proceed, but mm -hmm. uh, I actually uh, favor arguments for people who are tuned out of uh, soft skills uh, that are hard. Mm -hmm. Brain science and um, you know data from the workplace, mm -hmm. because both of those really argue for the power, usefulness, and importance of skills like empathy, yeah, particularly they... for leadership. And that that was really the the the, the big change. As maybe that's not quite the right way to characterize it. But your your shift with emotional intelligence in the mid '90s. How did you get into that form of bringing these ideas and and sort of you know creating a language for for business people to access the things that you've been studying for decades prior? Well, uh, you know, at the time I was actually a journalist at the New York Times. Right. And I was covering the brain and behavior. And a friend of mine, uh, Peter Salovey, who's now the president at Yale, mm -hmm. wrote a very obscure article with a graduate student of his called Emotional Intelligence. Mm -hmm. And I, I read that and I thought, oh, my God, this is such a powerful concept. Uh, you know, it sounds like an oxymoron, intelligence and emotion and the same thing. But it's really being intelligent about emotion. Yes. And I realized that this was the frame I'd been looking for. Hmm to put together both, uh, you know, a decade of insights into things like self-awareness and self-management and empathy and so on, and put it together with brain science, which I did in the book. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I had a chapter called Managing with Heart. It was about the business implications. Mm -hmm. Got a huge response. And then, as you pointed out, I wrote that article in Harvard Business Review, which I think is still among their most requested reprints after all these years. 
uh, because the responsiveness in the business community has been quite amazing. You know, some people said, you can't use the word emotion in, the, in a business, but actually now it's kind of... It's commonplace. Uh, you, you know, uh, uh, Fast Company just had an article, emotional intelligence, it's the new black. <laughs> Everybody needs it. You've got to have it in your wardrobe. So, so what what was it that people were resisting when they were saying like what was the the source of the you can't do that? What, what was it? What was this cutting up against? Uh, well, it was coming up against the uh, cover story that um, people leave their emotions at home; they don't bring them to work, which frankly is BS. Uh, you know, the brain doesn't discriminate. You've got emotions all the mm-hmm. time, all day long. Mm-hmm. But they weren't, uh, the, the acknowledgement or the ex- expression of them or uh, seeing their importance actually as a leadership tool uh, hadn't really caught traction in the workplace. Amazing. But, but right. the language of emotional intelligence somehow allowed people to, uh, you know, explore it, investigate now. They're probably... It's a mini industry, emotional intelligence consulting, yeah. emotional intelligence, this and that. Uh, and it's because now it's seen as an essential tool of leadership, essential tool of teamwork. Uh, in fact, of being effective yourself as an individual contributor. Of course. So what do you think has changed perhaps in our in our culture, in our in our society, in our consciousness as people? Uh, that has enabled or just really shifted the ground uh, and made this normal. Well, de rigueur. Yeah, Stu, I don't know. Maybe you have some ideas about (laughs) that. All I can say is it's happened. Yes, it has. Daniel, uh, I wanted to ask you to just really quickly give your best advice for people who are listening and have thought about or heard about mindfulness meditation who want to get into it. Uh, what, do you, what do you tell them? Well, first of all, uh, it doesn't take much time in your day. You can do five, ten minutes and get benefit. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more you do, the, you know, the longer you do, the better the benefit, but mm-hmm. still you'll, you'll see changes. And uh, if your company doesn't offer it to you, if there's no teacher available, there are a lot of good apps. Uh, one I like is 10% Happier. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's uh, Dan Harris's yeah. uh, app. Uh, Headspace is a good one. There's, there are many, many good ones. Mm-hmm. And uh, if, you know, the, the main, they say that the best kind of mindfulness or meditation is the one you'll do, basically. <laughs> so just find a way to start if you're interested. Try it out for a month. See mm-hmm. if, if you feel benefit. And if you do, keep going. That's great advice. Uh, and so the the idea of, of having a, a teacher, though, someone to help guide you along the path, uh, seems like a really important one. And I wanted to make sure that we return to that at least briefly. How, how What's the best way to find people who can provide that sort of um, resource? And, and how do you personally uh, continue to grow in your, you know, practice now that's probably, what, 50 years going? (laughs) I hate to think about it, but it's a long time. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I think um, the most important thing, frankly, is just to start. I think, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, along the way, if you find it's helping you and you want to go deeper, that's when you need a teacher. Mm. Uh, If you have a teacher right from the get-go, terrific. But if not, start with an app. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if you feel this is really something you want to pursue, 
then you can look for it. There are teachers all over the country, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, and just, uh, you know, mindfulness is, is, as you point out, everywhere now. And there are many, many teachers. One of the best uh, organizations for this, I would say, is the is John Kabat-Zinn's. It's very science-based. Mm-hmm. As I say, it started at, uh, you know, a medical school. It, it's a mindfulness-based stress reduction. Mm-hmm. But there are many, many. The Insight Meditation Centers are very good. Zen is very good. Uh, so I, I don't think finding a teacher is that difficult mm-hmm. if you're really motivated. Mm-hmm. But then, as you say, you can go beyond the kind of amateur level but I, I think there's a trade-off between scale and depth, and not everyone mm. really wants to go that deep, mm. uh, and you know, to the professional level, so to speak. Right. The, uh, Olymp- the Olympic level—that's another thing entirely, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, the Olympic level, which which Davidson studied by flying yogis over from uh, you know India and Nepal, uh, and putting them in a brain scan one by one. The Olympic level is quite something. You see brain function there that's never been seen by science. Right. I but love that are, part of the book. It's so yeah, so astounding, the results, and, and how you all reacted to, uh, to the results. Tell us a little bit about, about the study of the, the Olympians, the, the truly great ones. Sure. Well, these are people, you have to understand, they're, uh, so if 10,000 hours theoretically gets you to the top of a game, these are people who did 12,000 to 62,000 lifetime hours uh, of practice. <laughs> and, uh, when Davidson put them in the brain scan, he found, for example, some really amazing things. One is, I find most interesting, has to do with what's called the gamma wave. Mm-hmm. If you do an EEG, you know, everyone's heard of alpha waves and mm-hmm. so on. But gamma is very rare. It shows up when you have a creative insight, like, oh, wow, that's the solution. Or when you have... A, a very vivid image, like, you know, you think of biting into a crisp apple and the sound and the taste and the smell and, and all of that all at once comes. You get it for about a quarter or a half second ordinarily. But Davidson found that with these Olympic level of, uh, folks, they had gamma all the time in their brainwave, never been seen before by science. Hmm. Uh, they, they, they had several findings like that when they did this well-wishing meditation, the part of the brain for feeling good, interestingly, uh, activated seven to eight hundred percent, which science didn't think this was possible, let alone through a voluntary mental act. So, uh, you know, at the Olympic level, it gets quite remarkable. Now, you know, one of the things that's, I don't know, ironic or paradoxical about the, you know, the great the people who have dedicated their lives to to these practices and have and have elevated their consciousness in a way that uh, is is truly astounding to to most of us. They they live in small communities that are relatively isolated for the most part. Do I have that right? I, I think that's true, but it's voluntarily so. They mm-hmm. do that so there are fewer distractions. Right. So I'm I'm kind of segueing here into your your book about the the Dalai Lama and a force for good and how uh, you know the the these leaders if I can call them that in in the the practice of mindfulness meditation how they help to change the world. What what are your well, thoughts about that? Yeah, the Dalai Lama, uh, you know, is extraordinarily compassionate, mm-hmm. and the book that I did for his 80th birthday actually. 
uh, kind of articulates his vision for the world. And he's a Tibetan Buddhist, but this is not a Buddhist book. It's for everybody. Yes. And what he's saying is uh, he urges three things. One is get your inner world under control, get composed, meditation, psychotherapy, whatever works for you. Mm-hmm. Secondly, have a a moral rudder of caring for more than just yourself, not just my job, my career, my money, but other people too. And use that moral compass to act for a greater good. That's his message, very simple. And, uh, you know, I find it pretty compelling. I, I would buy that too. And I find it interesting that companies are saying uh, millennials and entry-level yeah. people now are saying that mission sure. and purpose is more important than for any previous generation. Yes, no, we see and that. I, I see that in the classroom for sure, uh, and, and everywhere I go, that meaningfulness yep. and social impact and responsibility is foremost in the minds of young people. Thank goodness. About time. But then you think about it, this generation is going to be facing problems that no other generation I know. has had to live with, and I think they're taking, taking it seriously and, uh, and, and more power to them. So what is eco-literacy and your interest in that? How are you pursuing that? Well, this is one of the great puzzles uh, of our time. It's called the Anthropocene Dilemma. This is the Anthropocene Age, the first Mm -hmm. geological age in which one species, anthro, us humans, Mm -hmm. uh, is behaving in a way which is degrading the eight global systems that support life on the planet. And we're doing it kind of, I, I would say, rather innocently. It's not malevolent, but it's built into the systems, the material goods, the, uh, the way we live and operate. Everything that, everything that we own, for example, has a footprint, not just a carbon footprint, has a water footprint, an energy footprint, a mm-hmm. nitrogen footprint. Mm-hmm. And in, in the process of its manufacture, you know, it off-gas X into the air or water or soil. There's now a new methodology. It's called life cycle assessment. It comes from a field called industrial ecology that can measure each of these impacts in a very fine-tuned way. Uh, and what, we're, what it's telling us is that we basically need to reinvent everything. And by the way, I think it's an enormous entrepreneurial of opportunity. Of course. Because... Everything that we have, pretty much, is made in a way which has a negative impact. It's destructive to our world. And what we need to do is rethink it. One of the great examples of rethinking that I love is two students at a tech college came up with a reinvention of styrofoam. Styrofoam is you know, evil, frankly. It never disintegrates. It ends up floating in circles in the middle of the great bodies of, of water in mm-hmm. the oceans, and it kills fish and so on. So they came up, it's because it's oil-based, so it never mixes with water. They came up with the styrofoam made out, or alternative rather, mm-hmm. made out of rice husks, which you get when you make rice edible. So they degrade into and the water. Mushroom roots. Mushroom roots. Nice. So it all degrades. But it works just as well as the commercial stuff. Uh, but it's kind of a model of biomimicry, doing things in a way that aligns with nature rather than degrades it. Uh, and I think that's where things need to move. Absolutely. I think, I think there will be an emerging market force as this new, these new generations there. come online. Absolutely. 
uh, that will make it pay to do the be yeah. the first mover. I'm I'm encouraging every single one of my students to do something with their careers that involves this kind of work, and oh, you know, because how wonderful. can they not? It's their wonderful. world. Exactly, exactly. Because over their lifetimes, if the prognostics are are true, you know, I happen to live next door to the environmental research campus of Columbia University. Uh, you know, and these scientists tell me, you know, the water is it's rising. Happening. The coasts are going to be submerged. The you know the four crops that support uh, human activity: wheat, corn, soy, and rice will no longer be growable in the regions that we've historically grown them. I mean, this is all incredibly important, Daniel. But I've got a number of other things in the fifteen minutes I've got oh, left yes, with you that I want to get to it. I know, and it's it's the most important thing you know, on earth right now as a topic for all of our attention. And I'm going to come back to it at the end and ask you where people can find out more about the Surely. this. But I, I'm curious about how this interest of yours, which I'm grateful for, is related to uh, the earlier work in your in your life and career. How how did you get into this, or how does it connect with the work on, well, on focus you know, attention think, uh, and emotional intelligence? intelligence is the bridge. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things I'm seeing is that just as, as with uh, cognitive brilliance, it needs a moral compass mm. that uh, can be used for, for, you know, manipulatively or for the greater good. And so I got very interested in um, not just the crises we're facing, like the ecological meltdown, but also in what does it take to help people find a purpose or a meaning in life, and and that's really uh, where my interests are now. Can you say more about that, and and how you bring that into your your coaching work? Because I'm, I know some of our well, listeners of are interested in learning more do, about that. Uh, thank you for mentioning the coaching. Yeah. With Key Step Media, uh, I've developed an emotional intelligence coaching certification. People who are coaches can learn to um, can develop expertise in this area or people who want to get better in emotional intelligence can ask to be coached but one of the things that we have is as part of that mm-hmm. is getting in touch with your sense of purpose what matters to you what do you really feel passionate about my friend at Harvard um, Howard Gardner talks mm-hmm. about what he calls good work where you align mm-hmm. three things what you love doing what engages you what you're really good at your excellence and your your moral rudder, your ethics, mm-hmm. and if those three things align, you love what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, you know, ideally, that's the kind of work anybody should aim for. Absolutely, and I encourage that in in my students, and and there are many of us now who are bringing that I- ideology to the to the work of leadership education. So, how does that fit with? Um, I mean, tell us more about how this this program works and how people can access it. Oh, sure. So uh, you can access it through um, Keystep Media online, and there are many levels at which you can do it. You could just go through some uh, several learning paths that are set up so you can do it yourself. You can do it in a group. Hmm. You can do it with a coach. You can be coached and get a, a very um, rigorous assessment of where your strengths are in emotional intelligence and where you could grow more. Uh, we have um, very sound measures for that. And if you're a coach, you can uh, be certified to do this. So we have gradations, all of them through Keystep Media, 
that help people in this domain. And as you point out, it's it's kind of a given now for leaders that emotional intelligence is is key to the toolkit. And this all happens remotely or virtually? Uh, it happens mostly virtually. The the coaching has some uh, in person uh, sessions mm-hmm. that we think are important, but it, it's person to person. The interest in this is global, so you know mm-hmm. we have to accommodate people who are in Latin America or people in Singapore, mm-hmm. wherever you know Sweden. Uh, so a lot of it is virtual in the sense of you know Zoom is virtual. Right. So 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 people can access. Uh, this set of resources um, without having to be physically located in New York or wherever. Oh, absolutely. No, we've set it up so that it's available to anyone anywhere. That's that's fantastic. And there's there's a peer-to-peer element to this coaching experience as well? Well, if you go through a group um, and you, you do what we call a facilitated learning experience, you'll be in conversation with people like yourself or uh, going through the same, what we call, learning paths. So, mm-hmm. for example, uh, we have one on influence and persuasion, mm-hmm. and uh, or on organizational awareness, or any of the 12 uh, competencies in my model of emotional intelligence. And as you go through it, you'll be asked to, uh, you know, for a day, just notice other people's uh, emotions. Mm-hmm. It's part of the empathy path. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then discuss that with other people who have done that, uh, just to not only be able to articulate what it is you observe, what you learn, but also to benefit from what they learned. And does does mindfulness training uh, enter into this, this program? We've threaded mindfulness throughout because we feel it's, it's a key foundation, yeah. building your focus, building your ability to be present to other people, and that's what mindfulness develops. In in Altered Traits, which is a fabulous play on altered states, uh, you, you write about lessening the grip of the self. Can you speak a little bit about what that Well, means? you know, this was a little bit of uh, irony that we found. Every major spiritual tradition talks about overcoming a self-focus and being open to the needs of others. Right. Uh, you know, it's a basis of compassion. It's a basis of caring. And uh, even though this is true, that this is really one of the the most important ends uh, or goals of every spiritual path, right. and certainly every meditative tradition, there was almost no research on it in the West. Hmm. We're, we're much more interested in, you know, we're pragmatic as a culture, you know. How is this going to help my attention? How is it going to help me with my stress? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that's exactly where most of the research is. You know how will benefit my health, mm-hmm. things like that. And and so to lessen the grip of the self means to 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 turn one's attention from one's own well, immediate you know, needs. Uh, to Stu, if you if you monitor your own thoughts for a while, you'll realize they're almost all focused on me. I, me, mine, in some way or another, mm-hmm. and. Uh, the pathway to compassion starts with uh, letting go of that self-focus and tuning into other people and empathizing with them and seeing if they're in need and if you can help them. And if you're totally focused on yourself, you won't even notice the other person. And yet that's where most of us are operating most of the time, right? Uh, and and so it, it really does take 
conscious and deliberate well, action? I, I to... think it is. But think, you know, you, you, you teach leadership, and the best leaders, the best bosses, are ones who actually do tune in yes. to other people's needs, who, who are present to the other person, who do empathize, you know, and it helps them in many ways. For one thing, it helps... They can be uh, a leader or a boss who cares about the people that they're leading, which creates not only more trust and, and mm-hmm. loyalty, but also helps people work better together. So it's it's not just for you know the saints; it's for anyone who wants to be effective, particularly in leadership. Oh, it's essential to, of yeah. course, to to make Absolutely. those those basic human connections, and yet it's at odds to our our more animal impulses, and so it requires a kind of deliberate well, yes attention. No, right? I would say that um, you know the great leaps in evolution have to do with cooperation, mm-hmm. not just competition. Mm-hmm. I think we have both capacities. Uh, the 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 workplace and school, oddly enough, reinforce individual achievements to a point. And after that point, you're working on a team, you're part of a large organization, and if you want to be a leader in that context, you have to look at other people. You have to consider what do they need or what can we do together? How can we work best as a team? So you, you in Altered Traits, you also write about heart-mind. Can you explain what that concept is and how it relates to what we've just been talking about? Well, heart-mind uh, is the way certain, uh, actually many Asian cultures talk about our mind. They put the heart as part of it. Mm. And uh, I, I like that because, you know, emotional intelligence is trying to do the same thing, to bring feeling and thinking together. And if... We're able to bring more of this kind of uh, way of thinking, way of being, way of acting in our workplaces. Uh, clearly, there's going to be a benefit to our relationships in other parts of our lives. Uh, you know, the right? brain doesn't distinguish between work and home. Mm-hmm. So if you cultivate empathy, for example, in our program, uh, you, can, you can practice tuning into people and understanding what, how they're thinking and how they're feeling. But you can do it at home, too. Of course. You know, uh, and uh, you're going to bring it to work. It's the same skill, both places. And, and the more one practices in a way that is, uh, well, it's quality practice, the, the stronger those, uh, those capacities become. So I wonder if you could say um, what you found in, in your research in Altered Traits about how traits actually change, how we go from states being altered to right. traits. Right. Well, this is this was one of the big discoveries that right. we made. Is when we put all of the research together, is that the uh, more hours people had put into mm-hmm. practicing, the more they showed benefits, not just during their session of practice, but in their lives generally. Uh, and that's what that's where we came up with the phrase "altered traits," because what's being developed is a quality of being uh, that stays with you through your day even though uh, it, it is based in the fact that you're having these sessions of practice. And it really is a lifelong journey, right? Because, uh, you know, without that continual focus, you you revert so quickly to being the jerk that you always were, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm quoting you or I'm mode, paraphrasing you. Know, <laughs> Right? Didn't you and Richie talk about it? Like, I'm still the same jerk, but yeah. maybe there's a, there's, a, there's some incremental change here that we're seeing. 
Well, it's gradual, it's slow, it is. Uh, but it's real, and, and that's mm-hmm. the encouraging thing. There's a question I've been asking all my guests this year, and you're the last one, uh, and I want to bring it to you, uh, and that is, uh, well, it's, it's because the topic is so important. We have been talking about it. How do you bring compassion to your working life? Well, uh, you know, the the very topics I choose are ones that I think will be a benefit to people. So to articulate uh, the role of emotional intelligence and leadership, in a sense, is a compassionate act. Because what I'm trying to do indirectly is get rid of horrible bosses. Hmm. That's a compassionate thing. And, uh, you know, I've also been very active in bringing this kind of education into schools, K through 12. Oh, basically. yeah? It's called social-emotional learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel that this is not only of benefit to kids, I think it benefits society as a whole to have kids who are better able to manage their impulses and their negative emotions and tune into other kids and cooperate because they bring those skills into life. They of bring course. it into the workplace. All their relationships. Yeah. And uh, so I, I would say that's been one of the main motivators in the work that I've done all along. So important. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Where's the best place for listeners to find out more about altered traits, mindfulness coaching, and the other things that we've been talking about? Uh, I would say for mindfulness uh, coaching, emotional intelligence coaching, Keystep Media is the best place. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you go to my website, Daniel Goleman, one word, danielgoleman.info, uh, you'll find uh, links to, to the books I've done. Uh, and I think if you just had those two, you would find everything you want. Wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us tonight and for all the remarkable work that you've been doing. Really appreciate it. Stu, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Daniel Goleman and that it provoked your thinking about the power of meditative practice and what it takes to be intelligent about our emotions at work and in the rest of our lives. I've had many guests on the show talking about mindfulness and meditation. Michael Baim, Aaron Owen, Johann Berlin, and others. What I especially appreciated about what Goleman brings is an emphasis on the greater good, on using meditation not just as a tool for calming oneself, decreasing anxiety, helping increase one's own focus, but also as a way of letting go of the self and orienting to the needs of others, to the larger world. But he's not talking about all of us becoming monks. No, he's asserting that the best bosses make their employees feel cared for. His focus is on strengthening self-awareness and interpersonal relationships. And he teaches how stepping off the wheel for a bit and looking inside enables us to then focus on others. Very powerful stuff. And anyone can benefit quickly and simply from starting to meditate. It enhances our ability to focus and cultivates a greater capacity for compassion. Both are essential for successfully integrating the different parts of our lives. So, if you're not currently meditating, well then here's a challenge for you. An invitation. 
check out Headspace, which I myself use, or 10% Happier with Dan Harris, or any other app or mindfulness practice, and try it. Let me know if you see changes in your relationships with others, in your attention at work and elsewhere, in your general well-being. Let me know what you discover. And if there's anything else you want to tell me about this show, ideas, feedback, I'd love to hear from you. My email, friedman.wharton.upenn.edu, or find me on LinkedIn. And if you'd like to learn more about improving performance in all parts of life, at work, at home, in the community, in your private self, your mind, body, and spirit, Well, that's what total leadership is all about, creating harmony among the different parts. It can be done. So visit totalleadership.org where you can find free chapters from all my books and lots of other free tools and tips. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, go to workandlifepodcast.com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, visit totalleadership.org and check out my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, have a richer life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes, and share it with your friends, your family, and your coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.